Welcome to A World on Fire, an All-Star Squadron podcast. I'm your host, Billy D, and alongside me for this episode is my co-host, Sean Ross. How are you, Sean? I am doing well. I'm doing well. How are you? I am doing very well, other than a slight mishap this morning that we've already talked about. So, <laughs> Snow-related mishaps are, are definitely not my forte. If you want to talk about living in 115-degree weather, that I can help. But, you know, snow is just it literally <laughs> another world to me. When you when I talk to, to people from across the country and they're like, it's snowing here, in my mind, it's Hoth. It's just, oh, like that's the only thing snow means. <laughs> it's like you're all just riding tauntauns to work, and that's it. <laughs> and then, you know, if something bad happens, slicing one open and sleeping inside of it. There you go. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> that's what they're there for. Yeah. So if anybody doesn't know, you are a huge Starman fan. And yes. I think fairly recently you had just talked about Starman on uh, another podcast, right? Yeah, actually twice. So uh, on my show, the Never Ending Reading Pile that I do with Greg Arujo over on the Pulp to Pixel Podcast Network, we talked about Starman Will Payton. We did a, a little little episode on his early days, which was a lot of fun. And then on Waiting for Doom with Paul Hicks, uh, at Dial F for Flanger, one of the shows on the Waiting for Doom feed, we talked about the Jack Knight Starman book, which is the best, not only the best book of the 90s, but I think one of the top five comic books of all time. Just unbelievable. And, and Ted Knight, Jack's father, is one of the main characters in that book and, in fact, has an unbelievable arc and an, an issue late in the series I'm not somebody who cries easily, and I'm certainly not somebody who cries easily at comics. There's an issue late in that run that I even thinking about gets me choked up. It's such a, a great story. So, yeah, huge Ted Knight fan. Wow, awesome. Yeah, I definitely do want to read that, uh, you know, that 90s series for sure. That's that's one I definitely want to read because I've heard many people, you yourself, you know, at the top of that list say nothing but good things about it. Yeah, the beauty of it is it's a complete story. They let Robinson, Harris, and, and Snayberg, they let them do, uh, It's I think it's 81 issues, maybe 82 issues, but it is a it is a complete story, a beginning, middle, end, and really no one has written Jack Knight since. Jack Knight is effectively off the table unless Robinson wants to come back and write him. So it's it, that's you know such a rarity in serialized fiction, but especially in the mainstream DC universe. I mean, they basically gave him the Neil Gaiman treatment like no one's wow. going to touch sandman well except that people have touched that universe since but that's always been with gayman's approval they've no one has gone back to jack knight since wow well that's cool though i i do like when they do that i mean obviously they can't do that with a lot of different characters and all mm -hmm. the time but when they do it when there's something like special i i do like when they do that yeah yeah it's really cool it's a great book all right, so yeah, we're going to be talking about All-Star Squadron uh, 41, 42, and 43, this uh, three-issue uh, uh, story here and starring Starman. And, uh, of course, you know, all the other All-Star Squadron members are there, too, and, you know, one of them being uh, the newest uh, inductee into the team, uh, Amazing Man, which is cool to have uh, Will there. Mm -hmm. That's pretty awesome, too. But they, these three issues are interesting because there's some other uh, creative hands in them as well. You know, whether they're scripters or, you know, pencilers or inkers or whatever, it's a little bit of a transition here. I mean, you do have some uh, steady uh, art with uh, Arvell Jones um, and Bill Collins, which is cool. But, mm -hmm. you know, we had some uh, different scripting. You know, Roy's the brains behind it all, but then some scripting and stuff uh, from some a uh, couple of other names. Right. So starting with this first one, you know, that's a name I recognize. Uh, you know, Roy Thomas, we get, you know, as the plotter, editor, scripter for you know, the, the book ends and, uh, 
in the middle, though, the uh, real meat of the story is uh, Paul Kupperberg. He's pretty good. Yeah, yeah. Pretty famous name. And also just one of the nicest people online. Like, you know, there are a number of, of comic creators I wish had never discovered the Internet, like John Byrne. And, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, my opinion of them, I, you know, I have to separate the art from the artist because of that. Kupperberg mm-hmm. is the, actually the opposite. Like I, he is such a delight online and so friendly and interacts with fans and, and is just such a nice person that I actually went and did a big dive back into a lot of his work because of just how friendly he is on Twitter and rediscovered my love for like early checkmate and Supergirl and his doom patrol run. And, you know, so just, I, I was excited to see his name because I think, you know, one, I, I appreciate his ability and, and his work, but two, just again, really nice guy. <laughs> yeah you find that there like you said there are some that are like oh boy can they just not be on <laughs> social media but then yeah guys like him and you know uh, the simonsons are real nice on there uh-huh. jerry ordway's real nice so it's it's cool you know that most of them are pretty nice people yeah yeah for sure but oh and like i said yeah arvel jones penciler and bill collins inker for this first one and then uh, gene d'angelo colorist and then <laughs> i like how they uh, in the issue here they give credit for the letterers it looks like it says lois and clark letterers <laughs> <laughs> so that's pretty awesome i like how they did that so that's that uh, is cool yeah lois Bohalis and john clark as the letterers but yeah lois and clark <laughs> funny that's great i love how they <laughs> kind of put a little in joke there that's when they can do stuff like that i enjoy that even even more it's just <laughs> makes the uh, issue even more uh fun for me well this isn't an this is not an easy series to letter because there are so often newspaper uh, you know, really important moments in the series happen in newspaper headlines or articles. And so, you know, this is a book that's a bit of a challenge to letter. And then not not to mention, there's also just a lot of dialogue, right? It's a it's a Bronze Age book. So mm-hmm. there's definitely a lot of dialogue to fit in without, a, you know, obfuscating the art and stories. So so they do deserve a special shout out because this is not an easy book to, to letter. No, yeah, a lot of work, especially when you're going to letter, you know, a Roy Thomas. Or, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, let's be honest, any of the, the Bronze Age guys mm-hmm. that you know came into prominence then, you know, Don McGregor or anybody, there's a lot of dialogue there. Yeah. So <laughs> they earn their pay when they see a script come across for All-Star <laughs> Squadron, that's for sure. But uh, all right, so yeah, we'll just jump right into this one, and then uh, we'll get going from here. You ready? Yep, let's do it. Okay, so... Catch a falling Starman. Uh, the issue begins with the team heading back to base. Brandy sees Starman plummeting to a certain death. She flies out of the All-Star special and slows his descent. They bring him inside where the rest of the All-Stars are hanging out. As he lays on a table, unconscious, uh, the tarantula recounts Starman's origin story, which he had just learned of days before. We see playboy Ted Knight whining and dining his girlfriend Doris in Gotham City. The club they're at gets held up by some hoods, but Batman and Robin take care of them. This inspires Knight to seek out the means to be a costumed hero himself. He visits his cousin Sandra in D.C., and she shows him a lab full of equipment. One of the inventions is the gravity rod. Ted tells Sandra he is going to try to get it to work, and back at his home, he does just that by harnessing the power of cosmic rays and funneling them into the rod. He then begins his superhero career by battling Dr. Doog and his goons who've stolen all of New York City's electricity and kidnapped the Gravity Rod's uh, inventor, Professor Davis. All right, so what did you think of this one? 
This is great. I I really like, you know, Roy was not afraid to mix in origin issues in this book. Mm-hmm. You know, and we're going to see a run of those <laughs> the later so, the later yeah, the later yeah. we get on into the series, especially post crisis, the more we're going to see. But I like that because there was no, you know, internet back then and and there while there was who's who, you know, who's who would do like a one pager and you know just give you the 50,000 foot view on these characters. So it was really nice to get to see these origins. And the thing that's cool as an adult is knowing that, you know, these were comics Roy read as a child and he felt really beholden to them. Right. So Mm -hmm. the origins we get are really their golden age origins, just, you know, retold with a little bit of a bronze age flair, you know, but without really changing many of the details, which I think is really interesting. So I liked it a lot. I definitely like the fact that it's a it's an appearance by Batman and Robin Mm -hmm. that sparks Ted to to think about being a hero because it's you know kind of one billionaire playboy <laughs> to the other you know but where Bruce Wayne is really a mask for Batman Ted Knight is sort of a superfluous billionaire playboy who's not really using his his great intellect or skills to contribute to the world at all and is just living this sort of boring pampered life so I liked that a lot how did you feel about that Batman and Robin moment Oh, I loved it. It was great. And it was funny because you saw Bruce Wayne and Dick Grayson right before the uh, the hold up there at the club. And what does Dick say? Something about, I think he said he wants to go catch the last couple innings of the Gotham Knights baseball game or something <laughs> like that. And Bruce is like, nah, not tonight, buddy. <laughs> so I don't know if he said not tonight because he knew there was going to be a hold up there because, you know, he usually knows everything. Or, you know, he was just like not in the mood for a baseball game. But yeah, too funny. But yeah, great. I love it. Love seeing Batman and Robin. Yeah, you know, it's funny because so they're at this club and and he's with, you know, start Ted is with Doris and she's kind of chiding him like, oh, you know, this is what you do. You just go to a different club every night. and You know, you're you're kind of in a rut and here this war is happening overseas. Don't you think you could be more or do more? And, and that's one of the themes of this book is the women in his life really pushing him, you know, his cousin and his and his girlfriend saying to him, like, you could be so much more. And him finally sort of rising to that occasion. But I do think I'm glad you pointed this out because they're at the club and the musicians are the ones who are going to rob it. So they're they're not yeah. actually musicians. And I do actually I didn't pick up on this the first time. I do think Bruce is ducking out the door with Dick quickly because he has picked up on the fact that something is going to go down because they they return in costume very quickly. Mm-hmm. You know, so I, I do think they did know. And I think that's really great. And it's such a funny moment because, you know, here you know, Bruce and 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 Dick are clearing out these goons and Ted actually warns Robin that he's about to get hit from behind. And then Ted does this little trick with his chair to help trip up a guy so that Batman could go help Robin more quickly. But no one realizes he did it. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. kind of looks like an accident. And so even his girlfriend, you know, as he's dropping her off is like, well, you know. Batman was just so muscular and and virile and you know like you know <laughs> he was so he was so potent and Ted's like hey you know like I I was there and she's like yeah well I'm gonna go upstairs and it's really I mean it's a great moment of just he's completely emasculated uh-huh. and it's really funny but it's also it's funny to see that being part of what prompts him to be a hero because again I know him from the Jack Knight Starman book where he is he's at the end of his career right like he's an older man and and can look back on his his career and he seems so wise and and experienced and at ease with himself and and you think well of course this is what a hero is so it's really nice to see his sort of fumbling beginnings and i liked that a lot what did you like the interactions with doris 
Oh yeah, it was great how he's like, How about we continue this conversation over a nightcap? And she's yeah. like, Not not tonight, kid. <laughs> yeah, he definitely I mean it's it's mentioned a couple times in this book. He does not lack for sort of confidence, you know, and and in, in any situation, which I think is kind of cool too, because again, older Ted Knight, you know, chides his son Jack for like, don't be cocky, don't be overconfident. You know, don't assume. And yet you look, go back to his beginnings and you're like, oh, he's speaking from experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's been he's been there. But and I do like how we get the, you know, oh, he makes a trip to Washington, D.C. to uh, hang out with his cousin, Sandra. So that's a, a really cool uh, interaction there. I like that a lot. Yeah. And it's so cool that she's Phantom Lady. And, you know, we, we mm-hmm. kind of basically get her origin, you know, nestled into his. And it's pretty funny. <laughs> I mean, I'm not, I promise you, Billy, I'm not trying to be crass at all, but, but this isn't accidental. There are, you know, there are art cues that she's going to be Phantom Lady because the Phantom Lady costume is notoriously revealing, right? It is, you know, and, and, and look, it's a function of its time and it's a, you know, whatever, you know, I'm not, I, I, it's not a practical costume in any way. It's not even a practical, a bathing suit on the French Riviera. Like it's not, (laughs) it's not practical at all but it is what it is it's an artifact of its time and it is kind of a trademark of that character and that is you know a very pronounced cleavage so when he goes to visit his cousin she's wearing this shirt with very low cut shirt and i thought <laughs> oh that's kind of a cool little thing by jones uh, you know doing this little signifier nice little visual signifier of like hey she's going to be phantom lady and here's a little you know so so i didn't find it like uh, crass or, or vulgar at all. I actually thought it was kind of a cool little moment. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. You could tell he was like, you know, this is what you're going to get down the road. And then she does have the little, you know, uh, if she says, what does she say? Listen, Ted, if you're really serious about wanting to do something constructive, why not join me in finishing this thing? Because this, you know, professor guy had these inventions. And she says, uh, this one invention is going to cast a blackout light where. You know, it's mm-hmm. gonna, you're not going to be able to see anything and all. So, yeah, it's really cool that, like I said, you kind of get part of her origin here as well, which is awesome. Yeah, and I've, this is a character I've always had a real fondness for because mm-hmm. they reboot her in Action Comics Weekly in the 80s. They oh. have a new Phantom, Phantom Lady who's associated with Sandra Knight. I think she's either maybe Sandra's, like, granddaughter or, or I, don't, I don't remember the exact details of her relationship to Sandra, but Sandra is her mentor. And she cool. becomes the new Phantom Lady. Uh, her name's Dee Dee. And, and it's a funny, campy, like they really lean into the camp of it. Mm-hmm. And I remember really enjoying that series. And so I've always had a fondness for this character. I think she's really, I just think it's, it's she's always kind of a fun, spunky, you know. And, and mm-hmm. I like the fact that it's this wealthy, you know, debutante in the 40s who society is telling, just get married and be a wife. And she's like, no, I think I'm going to be more. And I always thought that was really cool. Yeah, she's just like very, you know, headstrong, like, no, I want to do what I want to do. And I want to be a, a hero and, you know, fight, you know, basically fight the war just at home. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I really like that as well. But, man, page 11 here. I'm really loving the artwork with uh, Arvell Jones and Bill Collins. Man, I love it. It shows, you know, Ted and he's at his house and he's basically got an observatory at his house. Yeah. And he has this giant telescope and he has the gravity rod down there and he's explaining how he's going to try to. You know, harness the cosmic rays and stuff like that. And that page is really, really nice. I really like, a, you know, how, especially the uh, in the middle there, the third column from the left, um, how it shows, you know, he's, you know, thinking about you. He goes, I'm going to utilize the energy of the very sun itself. And you see all these planets in the background in space and stuff. That's really nice. I love that page. Well, it's what's really cool as well 
is the symbol the, at the bottom of that page when there's a he hits a button and the mm-hmm. cosmic rays come through into the rod through the telescope into the rod somehow yeah it's the golden age don't worry about it yeah there's this sort of <laughs> explosion and there's this soul the star symbol at the bottom of that page that is actually the logo for the jack knight starman book oh so, cool yeah so robinson and tony harris must have read this issue in research because jack knight that's the symbol very similar to the symbol on the back of his jacket and he has a tattoo like that in the Starman book. It's it's a symbol that recurs all the time. So I was like, oh, cool. Nice, you know, nice, like, call ahead to the book that's going to be coming, you know, 10, 15 years later. Yeah, that's awesome. That's a great callback that they did that. I like that. Mm-hmm. That's something that I really love when, you know, writers and artists on newer books do that, have callbacks like that to the older stuff. That's just, to me, that's the means they really cared. You know what I mean? Like, the, one, the, the ones that come in just kind of do their own thing and ignore stuff that came before that's kind of like eh to me, but that's a great, again, more fuel to the fire for me to yeah. read that content. <laughs> and and just to inspire you to read that Starman book even more, that Starman book really is the successor to the Earth Two All Star Squadron. Like it is a it is a capital L legacy book, and it's fantastic. Oh, that's great! Yeah, and then we get you know you, you get a little more you know another scene here with uh, Sandra where she says you know about her uh, father who's a, I think he's a senator or a congressman uh-huh. something like that. And, uh, you know, there's a couple of hoods waiting for him outside and looks like they're going to kill him. You know, it's almost like an assassination attempt. But as she's uh, wading through the shadows here, uh, I love how she uses, you know, my I'm second favorite weapon of all, maybe uh, a rolled up newspaper to hit them <laughs> over the head. <laughs> I love that. That's great. What did, and then she says uh, about uh, melting into the shadows and reappearing and stuff like that. I'm like, oh, yeah, they're really, you know, letting you know. What's going to happen with her in the future? Well, I mean, the best line in this book is she says, you'd be amazed at how much damage <laughs> a, a rolled up newspaper can do. And it is really funny because you're like, well, you're not disciplining a dog. Like, like you're, <laughs> you're fighting gangsters and you're kicking their butt with a rolled up newspaper. Like, that doesn't seem super real. I mean, it, it is funny. It made me laugh. And then <laughs> the, the thing I really loved is, yeah, I mean, there's there's no there's not even a a hint because she's like and i will be a phantom lady and i will you know pursue this and she's like don't bother calling again again the thing i really love about this is of the two of them she is by far the more the the stronger the one with more resolve the one with more courage i mean it Mm -hmm. is really cool of roy to to really to kind of use her as a foil for ted you know, and, and especially given the time period in which this is set and even the time period in which it is written, it's kind of revolutionary where oh, yeah. he's like, well, actually, she's the stronger character by far. And Ted has to use her inspiration to kind of, you know, grow up and become who he can be. I thought that was super cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, this series, you can say a lot of things about it with, you know, oh, well, you know, that that didn't work so great for the time. But to me, there are just as many things that did work well and were a little bit ahead of their time as well. So I think that's why this series is remembered as fondly as it, you know, is, you know, by all the readers, especially the ones that, you know, grew up reading it yeah. and buying it off the stands. Yeah, and, and it's it's nice to see his sort of fumbling first attempts at using the gravity rod. It reminds me of, you know, the the first Iron Man movie when Robert Teddy Jr. Pushing into everything and, you know, and, and it's such a nice little golden age jump from hey, I think I'm going to become a hero, you know, and, and he writes the FBI a letter like, hey, if you ever need help, you know, call me. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Yeah, it's such an innocent time because it's like, OK, crackpot. Like, what are you? What? <laughs> OK, just write the FBI randomly. But they do call him. You know, they do need his help. And that's really nice to see. 
Yeah, they're that desperate for help. They're just like, well, let's call this guy. Maybe he's a kook. And I think the, uh, the FBI agent even does say at some point, like, oh, no, I think this guy is a, a hoax. Oh, no, he has, says he's a hoax. This guy must be a – he's not going to show. Blast it. It was probably just a hoax. And he goes, yeah. I'm no hoax. And <laughs> he shows up, and the guy's like, well, why not give it a try, pal? Because, you know, they have no idea how to stop what's going on. Well, and there's such a nice couple of moments because the FBI agent is like, oh, God, I hope I didn't make a mistake with the gravity rod. And he's like, you know, I, I thought that FBI agent would be more in awe of me than he was. And it's, it's, <laughs> it's just a really good little bit of, of writing by Kupperberg, you know, to a little bit of dialoguing by Kupperberg to, again, just remind you that character and that he's, mm-hmm. you know, kind of a, he's literally out on his first mission. And so I, I thought that was cool. And I, I, I like that. I like that Ted is is, you know, that that sort of cocksure, you know, because, again, he's he's going to be humbled pretty quickly in this arc. Yeah, for sure. It, it is nice to see uh, when it's a, a superhero beginning that it's not all like, you know, just because they have, you know, a weapon or a costume, they just aren't already, you know, automatically being able to make all the right decisions and just, you know, beat up every villain on the planet with ease. I, I do like that there's some, you know, unease to uh, what he's doing out there. That is a nice touch. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. So, yeah. And then Dr. Doog. What a guy. I mean, <laughs> What a, what a name for a villain. I think we've seen him before. I think he was in an earlier uh, issue, was he not? I think I think he yeah. appeared. Yeah. Yeah, we've seen him before. And it's the, what is it, like the society, oh, the Brotherhood of the Electron. <laughs> Which is, <laughs> yeah, great name. It sounds just like the nerdiest after school club ever. Like it just doesn't sound, you know, like this intimidating group of, of villains. But, you know, they've, they've got a, a lair that he has to get into and he's got to rescue the scientists that created the, gravity rod and the black light ray and i like the fact that the guy the scientist calls ted out he's like hey you that thing that weapon you're using you stole from me you're a criminal and ted's like hey slow your roll buddy like let me mm-hmm. let me free you i'll show you what i'm actually doing so i liked that too i liked that he got a little bit of guff because he did not ask permission you know he mm-hmm. he just barreled ahead with this so i liked that moment yeah he says to him you're just another cheap hood like dr Doog," and uh Starman says, you're jumping to some decidedly wrong conclusion, sir. But since you might not know who might be marching, or he goes, I'll just save the explanations for later and let my actions speak for themselves. And he, he frees him. And the guy's like, oh, maybe you're not. And then he has to go one-on-one with uh, Doog here after he beats up some of his goons. It's basically just this Dr. Doog guy and some like you know guys that look like small-time hoods. Yeah, and, and, and Ted's lucky to survive. I mm-hmm. mean, Doog keeps firing weapons at him and... and- even Ted thinks to himself like, Oh, I better, I need to really learn how to use this rod better. Like I'm <laughs> kind of just flailing through and, and he's lucky cause Duke is kind of a one trick pony. There's a, there's like three different trap jo- door traps <laughs> in this issue. And Ted falls it for the first time. And then after that, he's like, uh, I can fly. Like I don't, your trap door trap is not really great. And you know, Duke <laughs> seemingly meets his own fate and that, you know, kind of wraps up you know, Ted considers telling Doris the truth, but then changes his mind and, you know, and then it kicks us back to the the perisphere. But I liked the the origin here, and and it's it's a little different than Robinson will play around with it a bit in the Starman book, and he'll have it. He's not going to dismiss it at all, but he's mm-hmm. gonna he's gonna focus more on like Ted's second adventure, which will involve the Mist because the Mist is his big villain, and it's the the Mist, the family, the Mist mm-hmm. through. And so, um, so it's really cool. Like it's, it's a nice, again, like 
I love when comics talk to each other through the decades. Yeah. I think that's always really cool. And, and this is definitely shouting ahead to what's to come and what's, what's to come is shouting back. And so I thought, I think it's really cool. Yeah. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention the golden age gallery pinup by Joe Kubert in the back. Wow. Oh, that yeah. is really super cool. Yeah. It's awesome. It's, I mean, it's all, it, you know, it's Kubert because his Hawkman is like no other. Oh yeah, absolutely. That's that would be a dead giveaway. Even if it didn't have his name on there, you would know. You would see the Hawkman and be like, "Yep, that's him." His is very unmistakable. But yeah, so overall, good issue here. And then, so what about the cover of this one too? This is a really, really good cover. I love the blue background. Yeah, this looks like a who's who entry. I mean, it's by Ordway, mm -hmm. and it's beautiful. I mean, it's it's Ted, you know, heroically posed in the middle in his red, yellow, and green costume. And then we get Serpent, basically, like a, a night sky Serpent in the back of he and Sandra, you know, um, him fighting some goons, him fighting, um, you know, Doog. And it's just it's really a, a powerful Starman. In fact, I would say it's probably an all time great Starman cover. Yeah, it's a it's definitely super cool. I love this one. This is what I wouldn't mind having like a print of or something like that. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, that would be a lot of fun. I would like to have it. But uh all right, so now we kind of, you know, ended that one with Starman then finally waking up and, you know, saying, hey, there's some bad juju going down here, and he wants to <laughs> tell the rest of the team about it. That's how that uh, issue ended. So then in uh, 42, we have uh, writer-editor Roy Thomas, so he's back to doing the whole show here, and then Arvell Jones and Bill Collins on art again, and Gene D'Angelo, colorist, and David Cody Weiss, letterer. So pretty much the you know, the new team that we have here going forward and have had for a couple issues here in a row now. So, you know, part two, and I love the name of this story as well. What a great, <laughs> good pun here. <laughs> love it. Yeah, there's a, there's a plane flying directly at, at Starman in the night sky, and it, and the title of the book is Oh Say Can't You See? Like, <laughs> can't you see this plane heading right for you? And So this is a great issue. It picks up where the last issue left off with like, another flashback. This time we see how Ted arrived at the Perisphere wounded. He was mm -hmm. flying over Hawaii. There was his cosmic rod, his gravity rod somehow interfered with the stealth technology being used by these Japanese planes. They suddenly were revealed in the night sky. They attack him. He fights back. They drop some bombs. They're trying to bomb Pearl Harbor again for a second time. Ted takes care of the bombs heroically, but then faces off one-on-one -on -one against one of the planes which is being um, led by Prince Daka and the technology they use for their stealth planes really interferes with the cosmic rod causes Ted to fall out of the sky as he's losing consciousness. He tells the rod to take him somewhere safe and it flies his seemingly unconscious body to the perisphere, which is where last issue opened when he fell out of the sky and firebrand caught him. This mm -hmm. issue focuses a lot on the backstory there where we get Prince Daka talking to the three villains, the three Japanese villains who he's going to use to attack the All-Star Squadron. Mm -hmm. We have the uh, one we've seen before, Kung, who is a samurai who can transform into animals. We met him in issue eight. We have Sumo, the samurai, uh, who has is basically fighting prowess. And then mm -hmm. we have Nami, who we have also met before back in All-Star Squadron 33 and 35. She mm -hmm. is super strong. She has endurance, and she has the power to control water, basically aqua kinetic. This is actually a character I was surprised to see as a villain. I had forgotten because she is actually going to 
down the road, spoilers, join the Young All-Stars when Roy reboots this book as a Young All-Stars after Crisis. She's actually one of the main characters in that book. She's one of the heroes. And so it was funny to see her. I knew she had an origin as a villain, and I remember reading these issues, but it still took me aback a little bit. So mm -hmm. uh, so Prince Daka, these three villains, their plan is to attack the Perisphere, steal any weapons from the All-Star Squadron that they could get to use on behalf of the war effort for the Axis powers. They head for the Perisphere. They encounter several All-Stars. Now, the All-Star Squadron, many people have, many of them have flown away, so we're left with a small group, which includes Amazing Man, Firebrand, Starbrand, Tarantula, Robot Man, and Liberty Bell. The villains attack. There is a great battle, and in the end, the villains have the upper hand as they have dismantled Robot Man, taken out Amazing Man, taken out Starman and have captured Liberty Bell and have their hands on the cosmic rod. So Billy, what were your thoughts on this issue as they as we get a, our our first look at the villains and we get our first look at a, a real battle with the All-Star Squadron versus the Axis powers? This was a good one. I like this one quite a bit. Um starting out with like I said the crazy pun for the uh name of the story. <laughs> that was great. <laughs> I, I I love stuff like that. But uh yeah I do love the intro to the villains. I did remember Tsunami because she was just, you know, a couple storylines ago mm -hmm. she was in the book. But it took me a while to remember that Kung character because then I thought to myself, I don't remember this guy. And then I thought, oh, wait a minute. I think he was just almost like a one-off in one of the early ones. And it, yep. you know, I think it was like, what did you say, issue eight or something like that. So that was uh -huh. a long time ago that I had read that one. But um, I do remember him, you know, giving the All-Stars, you know, a hard time like they had a tough time you know defeating him but then he ended up just getting away and then uh, the newer character that uh samurai he's pretty cool too and i do like you know not to give anything away but i do like how uh, things shake out with him and uh tsunami in the next issue i do like that quite a bit because it does make sense you know what happens and where the direction they go in at the end of the next issue i like that a lot but yeah love it and then seeing the all-stars man they take a real beating in this one like yeah. really bad. Yeah, they really do. There, this is not a great showing for them, and and that's the no. thing. Another thing I appreciate about Roy is he's not afraid to let his characters take some knocks. I mean, look, the villains that invade Robot Man, Amazing Man, and Firebrand alone have the power to take them out. Right? Like, it's mm -hmm. not like this is the most powerful group invading, but they invade really wisely. They have this stealth technology. And they come in invisibly and they literally chop poor robot man to pieces <laughs> before anybody even knows they're being attacked. So they they take him and Firebrand off the board right away mm -hmm. in order for this to be a, a fair fight, which I thought was a really smart strategy. Yeah. Yeah. Poor robot man. This is the second time like recently he's taken a real beating in that other <laughs> story that Martin and I talked about. He almost got run over by a tank and got his legs, legs melted off it was pretty nasty so i'm like man robot man can't catch a break here well and the, the truth is there's a legacy to that name because cliff Steele, <laughs> when he becomes robot man in the doom patrol his body's literally broken apart every other issue i mean it is a <laughs> it is a, tra a grand tradition for characters named robot man to spend a lot of the adventure in pieces on the floor so so it's <laughs> nice to see it's happening to this version as well <laughs> yeah that's awesome but yeah, and it's just, I, I do like how, you know, it does leave them with, you know, a, a decision to be made at the end of the book where, you know, Daka says to them, like, hey, you know, you want to basically, if you want to see Liberty Bell alive again, you better bring Tsunami and that gravity rod to 
the Bronx Zoo, I think it is, um, tonight before midnight, or else, mm-hmm. you know, there's going to be, you know, she's going to be done for. And I do like how that leads into the next issue of, you know, the the team kind of being split on what to do there. I do like that. I Anytime you can have, a, you know, a little bit of conflict in a team, and then they need to come together in the end to, you know, make it right, uh, I do like that. That's one of my favorite tropes. Yeah, and there's some great character bits. As much as this is a fun fighty fight fight issue, there are some great character bits in it too. Like Starman is is prejudiced, and they call him out on that against the yeah. Japanese. He talks about there, so there it's starting to become more common knowledge in this point in this comic, and this is the motivating factor for Tsunami, which I really like. Roy's going to really lean into this in the Young All Stars book. That her her family are Japanese American. She's born in America, but they're yeah. taken to concentration camps you know and this is this is a piece of history that's very familiar for me because these internment camps many of them were located in western arizona mm-hmm. in really desolate parts of arizona and as a, a kid uh, and as a teacher i have actually done field trips out to them and mm-hmm. it is yeah it's really um wow it's an eye-opening look at a, a very shameful part of American history. And so I like that Roy leans into that, making Tsunami more sympathetic. But also, he's not afraid to say, hey, look, at this time, it's war. There are some prejudices in place that people are going to have to outgrow. Even our own bright, shiny heroes like like Ted Knight you know, mm-hmm. is going to have to see through this. And so I just think, you know, there's such good character bits in this as well. And mm-hmm. it's it's really cool. And then there are just some fun moments. Like, I don't know about you, but every time Liberty Bell is in danger and all of a sudden Tom Revere, the guard of the Liberty Bell in Philadelphia, <laughs> just yeah. goes bong, bong, bong and knows to hit the bell. Mm-hmm. It makes me laugh every time. I don't, I don't know. Do you get a kick out of that? Oh, yeah, that's funny. But I like the couple panels leading up to that when uh, Bell and Tsunami are kind of going at it and she tries to like run away from tsunami because she knows she can't handle her strength you know one-on-one and uh she tries to run away and her new costume has a cape and of mm-hmm. course tsunami is able to grab the cape and she's like oh damn cape <laughs> <laughs> and i'm like oh that's funny so yeah then she gets hoisted over her head and like you said then there's the liberty bell tom revere stands guard and i'm like i think did they show at one point that she almost has some kind of communicator with him like to signal him to do yeah. that the bell on her costume, they're they're going to develop uh, a, an ability for her to like hit the bell on her costume and and access the those. It's like the adrenal powers. Basically, she mm. gets like maximum human capacity, almost like a maybe super soldier kind of thing. Gotcha. And so yeah, they're gonna they're gonna ramp her up pretty quickly here. I'm so glad they're getting rid of the cape because this is a short lived bit of her costume that I completely forgot about. I never picture her in a cape in this costume. So when they when she showed up in one in this issue, I was like, ugh, that's not a good look. Like you, you gotta ditch the cape. And then it, you know, then they in story they ditch it pretty quickly, which is great. <laughs> yeah. And back to what you were saying too about the whole, you know, heroes, you know, some of them being, you know I I do really enjoy that when you sometimes have your heroes showing as, you know, they have issues as well. And like you said about Starman, you know, having some issues like and being like having some racist feelings toward japanese americans mm-hmm. i do like when you do you know writers like roy to me good writers do that they show their heroes not always as you know infallible and always knowing the right answer to every question and you know never showing a shred of you know wrongdoing i don't like that i like when they show them that you know they're i, I like when they show them having their own you know uh foibles as well that's great 
Well, think about how powerful this was. You know, I read this as a kid. I was a really young kid when I read this book. And instead of seeing, you know, oh, heroes are perfect and they never make mistakes, reading this and going, oh, okay, heroes can have, you know, these traits and they have to work to overcome them. And, Mm -hmm. you know, so so it's okay to make mistakes or it's okay to have something about you that's not okay as long as you work towards it. And yeah, I I, again, I don't think Roy gets enough credit. For me, this is really All-Stars, his shining light. You know, I mean, I, I get, you know, Obviously, he wrote great Avengers comics, and he wrote, you know, uh, other things for which he's acclaimed. This mm-hmm. will always be my favorite work by him, and it's because I, I think it's the time in his career he was most left alone to his own devices, and we got to see the range of his talent, and I, I really love it. I, I think it's just he's a much better character writer than I think people give him credit for. Yeah, absolutely. Before I read All-Star Squadron, I would have said either Avengers or Thor were my yeah. favorite Roy Thomas, you know, uh, uh, works, but this one's either first or right up there with those as, you know, my favorites. And it, it didn't take long for it to become a favorite either. Like <laughs> literally, literally within, you know, the first 10 or 12 issues, I was like, Oh wow, this is the greatest. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, I'm not going to argue that his Avengers run is an all time great cause it is, but I just, I'll always have a special place in my heart for this book. So, so yeah, the issue ends on a cliffhanger and it's going to carry us to part three. Yeah, it was really good, you know, because like I said, you don't really see them beaten too badly like that, you know, before. But, you know, there's it's going to lead into the next issue, which, like I said, I love this one, too, because, you know, it starts out with, uh, you know, some uh, trouble within the team. So I'm going to talk about that here in a second. Uh, But what about the cover on that one, too? That was uh, that one was okay to me. The cover, it wasn't as good as the 41 or 43. I just I don't know if it was the inker that was on that one. I just was like, oh. I thought it was just okay. How about you? Yeah, well, it's not an Ordway cover. I mean, it's not fair to Arvell Jones, you know, to to rate him against Ordway. I mean, I would I wouldn't want somebody if I played basketball to be like, well, you're not Jordan, you know, like you know, it's 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 an unfair comparison to compare anybody to Ordway. But it, yeah, it's definitely I like the cover because Liberty Bell is at the center of it, and she's my favorite character from this book. Mm-hmm. But other than that, it's yeah, not quite as dynamic as the previous one. And then not quite as tense as the next one. So solid, but yeah, there, there will be better ones in this arc. Yeah, Arvel Jones pencils and a guy I've never heard of before, I don't think so, is inker uh, Rick Magyar. I don't know that I've heard that. Name. Oh, yeah, that makes sense, actually. So Magyar is a, a Bronze Age inker, 80s into 90s, I think even into the early 2000s. He's a very heavy inker. He reminds me a lot of Klaus Janssen. Mm, okay. uh, or or Tom Palmer, that very heavy line. He most famously, and, and I think most effectively, he is Dennis Cohen's inker on the on the Denny O'Neill question. Book oh, okay, yeah. That comes out post crisis. That deluxe edition book that's brilliant. That that to this day is one of the best comics ever written. And he he and Cohen work really well together because Cohen has a very gritty style and mm-hmm. Magyar like ups the grit. And so he's a great inker, but not for everybody. He's got a heavy touch. Yeah, I think I just have the first issue of that question series and that's it. So I guess I'll have to hunt those down. Oh my God, Billy. It is, it's, it's philosophical. It is challenging it is weird it it's it's there is no other series like it and it is a, a proto vertigo series basically like had that book come out 10 years later they would have released it as a vertigo book oh wow wow that's really cool yeah yeah i'll have to definitely check that out because i did like that number one issue like the story seemed like it was going to be pretty good you said the artwork is really good really oh my good. god dennis cohen is amazing 
Absolutely. So, all right. Well, back to this guy here. So, this is uh, All Star Squadron forty three, and like I said, it's a uh, the this cover is by Arvel Jones and Tony DiZuniga, and then uh, uh, this one is called Ultimate Victory, and right, it's a uh, editor plotter Roy Thomas, and then this is interesting dialogue Mike Barron. I yeah. didn't even realize he was in mainstream comics back in nineteen eighty four. That was I did not realize that. Well, he's. This is definitely one some of his earliest work. I mean, he you know he's going to go on to write, you know, like Nexus uh, with Steve Root. But he's actually people forget this. He's the original writer on the Wally West Flash book in '87. It, Mike Barron is the is the first writer, and then Bill Messner Loeb's comes in, and that's when it takes off as a book. You know, then eventually Wade and and on Augustine and everybody else. But but yeah, Mike Barron is this is this has got to be one of his early credits for DC. Yeah, like I said, I was really shocked by that. I was like, wait, what? I because <laughs> I knew he did some, you know, more independent stuff early on in his career, and I didn't realize he was already, you know, doing some spot jobs at DC in late nineteen eighty-four. So that was interesting. And then uh like I said, Arvel Jones and Bill Collins again on uh, art and Gene D'Angelo colorist and David Cody Weiss on letters. So all right, so Ultimate Victory is uh the name of this one. So <clears throat> the All Stars are helpless. And Daka orders his soldiers to kill them. Just as Sumo is ready to slice Amazing Man, the Guardian leaps in and uses his shield to stop the killing blow. He buys just enough time for the other All-Stars to wake up and take the fight to Daka's forces. They push them back, but not before Daka grabs Bell as a hostage. And he tells the All-Stars that they need to meet at the Bronx Zoo and they will do a trade for Tsunami and the Gravity Rod. Starman has a crisis of conscience, though, believing this is all his fault. Brandy grabs a gravity rod, but Tarantula argues with her and thinks giving them to trade for uh, Liberty Bell is a mistake. After they settle their differences, Brandy, Will, and Guardian go to the zoo to trade the rod and Tsunami for Bell's life. As the exchange is being made, though, Tsunami has a change of heart due to Daka's treachery and helps the All-Stars get the drop on Daka and retain the rod. The villains escape, but Tsunami follows her own path, which is to help her people, the Japanese living in America that are being treated unfairly by the government. All right, what do you think of this one? So this one's tough. I I like the story, but you could definitely tell this is not scripted by Thomas. Now, I know the two issues ago, you know, we covered 41, that was scripted by Kupperberg, but but Paul Kupperberg and Roy Thomas are, are kind of of the same generation of writers. Mm-hmm. You know, in fact, I would argue they're very similar writers, very similar aesthetic. Yep. And so Kupperberg slid perfectly into the book. I it just literally had you not told me he was credited with dialogue, I wouldn't have known. Baron, mm-hmm. it definitely shows. And it shows that he's a younger, kind of newer writer. Mike Barron, for me, I always associate as kind of an edgy writer. You know, he wrote like the early Punisher stories when the, mm-hmm. when Marvel released that Punisher book on its own. And he wrote the Wally West Flash book, which people don't remember was a racy book, pun not intended. Um, <laughs> it was a pretty risque book in its early days. And, you know, so so he's definitely a writer that's pretty far on the spectrum from from Roy Thomas, closer to Garth Ennis than Roy Thomas. And so you can see that in moments in this book where some of the characters in my mind aren't necessarily behaving the way they normally would. Like, like I think the fight between Firebrand and Tarantula is probably more intense 
than maybe Roy would have intended it to be. I mean, she literally almost kills him by accident. And so, <laughs> yeah, I think it what was supposed to be a, a, a heated dis- again, pun not intended, a heated discussion turned more violent than it would have been maybe under a different writer. But having mm-hmm. said all that, still a, a really good issue. I mean, I, I like the dissent in their ranks. And and so, like, what are your thoughts on how they play out on who wants to save Liberty Bell versus who is thinking of the greater good? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, Tarantula, I haven't, I just feel like they haven't given him a ton to do since he's been on the team. So it's always a little hard to gauge how he's going to, you know, react to certain situations. But we have, you know, him and obviously Robot Man, who's still, you know, welding himself back together and Star <laughs> Man that stay behind. But, you know, you you know that uh, the Guardian for sure is definitely in Firebrand's camp that, you know, this is what we need to do. We need to trade them, you know, because her life isn't worth, you know, because uh, Liberty Bell, I'm sorry, uh, Firebrand does say at some point that, hey, listen, Tarantula, you think that, you know, the other you know, Daka and his forces getting their hands in the gravity rod means, you know, ultimate death for thousands of other people. But, you know, that's not true because you're, you're saying about something that might happen in the future. Like, you know, we know Liberty Bell is going to die if, you know, we don't do something. So I do like how Firebrand is. She definitely has a very assertive personality, and I like that about her quite a bit. But it, going back to what you said about Baron, I do definitely I did definitely feel a difference yeah. in in the scripting and the characters, uh, even weighed against the Kupperberg script. Th- that seemed, like I said, very seamless when he came in because he and Roy are more of the same kind of writer. And Baron was a younger guy and, you know, again, usually writes more action oriented stuff, more gritty stuff. And I did read a couple of those uh, early issues. He did a flash, too. And, you know, this sort of kind of reminds you of that as well. Yeah, and I I do, though, really like who chooses which side, because that makes sense to me. Firebrand is, you know, previously sort of a debutante and daughter of a wealthy family. And, and, you know, the war wasn't quite as real to her until her brother was injured in Pearl Harbor. So for her, it's very easy to think personally, like, Belle's my friend. I don't want to lose her. Mm -hmm. It makes sense to me that the Guardian would be on that side because Jim Harper's a cop. He's a beat cop. So Mm -hmm. for him... You know, violence is personal. It's the people around him. You care about your neighbors. You take care of them. Where, you know, the tarantula is a reporter, is a writer. He thinks he's thinking more globally like, hey, we all have to make sacrifices. You know, we cannot let the Japanese get this weapon. So I, I do think the, the rationale makes sense. But my favorite, my absolute favorite moment in this comic is the fact that Ted Knight, Starman, when they're like, what do you want to do? It's your gravity rod. He's like, I don't care. I'm out. And he's he's freaking out. He cannot make a decision. And that moment for me, and, and this is, you know, really interesting. This is a moment of self-doubt for him. It makes sense in this book because he was a billionaire playboy who didn't take life very seriously. And suddenly being a hero isn't so easy. And, and he's confronted with hard decisions. It would make sense that he would buckle a bit. But what's really cool is James Robinson, when he goes on to write Starman, you know, 10 plus years later, mm-hmm. he's going to pick up on this issue. And actually what he has happened is Ted Knight is part of the Manhattan Project. He's oh. that brilliant a scientist. He helps Oppenheimer and Einstein. He helps all of them develop the atomic bomb. And after the atomic bomb is used on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, Ted Knight has a mental breakdown. Wow. And he's he's hospitalized. He's institutionalized for like five or six years. 
And it's only the love of Doris that kind of pulls him out of it eventually. And it's that's a major theme in the Starman book is is that breakdown that Ted had, why he had it, and sort of what it does to reshape what he thinks about violence. And it's really cool because it all ties back to these issues. Again, I love when – again, I said this earlier. I love when comics talk to each other. It's part of the beauty of being a comic collector is you pick up on those moments. So I I love this issue. Even though Baron feels a bit off to me in moments, that moment feels very real. Yeah, absolutely. I do like that. And that's really cool that, you know, he uses that, uh, you know, this, this gets used down the road. I, I really mm-hmm. enjoy that. But yeah, this is, I do, my favorite part of this one is hands down, you know, when we get to the end there and DACA is, you know, you know, said, you know, basically he gave his word to the all-stars that there wouldn't be any, any funny business, that it would be a straight trade, but then he was trying to do something underhanded and sneaky. And, you know, you have, you know, sumo and tsunami that are, you know, very honorable. And they're just like, yeah, no, we're, we're not going to be a part of this. And tsunami walks away and sumo doesn't walk away, but he does knock the gravity rod out of, uh, Daka's hands there. So he can't uh, kill the all-stars. I, that's literally my favorite part. I love that. Yeah. And I like the fact that Daka and Kung are like, Hey, this is war. There, there's no mm-hmm. honor in war. We're taking this weapon. And Samurai and and Tsunami are like, no, you're acting without honor. I like the fact that there's a mix of reactions because I don't want the Japanese characters just depicted as part of this honorable society. And I don't want them depicted as just dishonorable. I like that there's a mix, that, that it matters to their character less than their origin. Yeah. And I thought that was really cool. And then again, I always think of Tsunami as a hero. And so the fact that this issue ends setting up her arc to come in Young All-Stars, which clearly Roy was trying to get to, you know, had the mm-hmm. crisis not happened and messed everything up, he clearly was building towards this for All-Star Squadron, but he'll eventually pick up on it in a really big way in his next series. Yeah, I have not actually read one issue of that series, so I definitely need to check that one out, too, eventually. Yeah, it's fu- it's a funny series. It is the first, I think, most of the first, like, 12 or 13 issues are drawn by Brian Murray, and mm. they're awesome. They're gorgeous. They're the story's really good. The book is really good. And then when Murray leaves, the penciler who comes on in his place is not anywhere near as strong. And and Roy kind of leans into some of his less popular tendencies. And it becomes a harder read. Definitely the back half of that book is not as as successful. And there's a reason it ends. But the first like 12, 15 issues of that book are fantastic. Oh, cool. Yeah, I'll, I think that's on the DC app. So I'll definitely have to check a few of those out just to see what they're all about. Mm-hmm. And then I did want to mention, too, between pages 17 and 18, there is an ad for another book I've never read, but I've heard about uh, Amethyst Princess of Gemworld, a really cool ad. Like, I like really like that ad. It's nice. Yeah, this is a, that's a fun book. It's funny. It's not a book I bought when I was a kid because I was a stupid boy, and I was like, "Oh, that's a that's a girl book." You know, that's just for a, girls. Yeah, I was just a dumb. I was a, a total idiot boy. But then later on, she has a really cool moment in Crisis with Doctor Fate, and and the moment in Crisis is like to be continued in Amethyst issue whatever. And I went and picked those issues up, and I was like, "Oh, this is really cool." So I've gone back and picked up these series, and it is a ton of fun. I mean, it's basically. Lord of the Rings and, you know, um, you know, all a high fantasy with yeah. kind of a modern twist. It's it's a it's a fun book. And the art's gorgeous. Yeah, it says Rick Estrada and Pablo Marcos. So that's yeah. pretty, pretty good right there. That's yeah. Great art team. <laughs> that's worth giving something a look. And then uh, in the very back, we have a Golden Age gallery again, a pinup 
And uh, it says it's by, by an, again, another guy I've never heard of. Um, it says uh, the artist is a guy named uh, Howard Bender, I think, right? Isn't it Larry Dean? Or I'm sorry, no, yeah, Larry Dean. Yeah, it's right yeah. there on the page. Yeah, I've never heard of him before, but this is a really good pinup because I love that version of the Sandman. That's my favorite version. Oh, this is gorgeous. It looks like Kyle Baker. I mean, it is it is an unbelievably good. And, and again, <laughs> there's a theme here, the idea of comics talking to comics. This totally could have come out of Sandman Mystery Theater, that Vertigo book, you know, in the late 90s by Matt Wagner. And uh, it's I mean, it's gorgeous art. So I I really like it. I don't, I don't know if you read that book. That was a Vertigo book. Um, and that is a dark 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 comic i'd not for the faint of heart i it's a book i loved but i wouldn't necessarily recommend unless you've got a strong stomach for violence it's a it's a really it's mm. one of the it's one of the more violent disturbingly violent comics i've ever read but it also makes you love wesley dodds and diane belmont oh yeah that's cool yeah and i did uh, forget to mention um after we talked about 42 in the back of that uh, one, there was a pinup, I think, of, wasn't there a Black Canary? Black Canary. Yeah, and that is like, holy crap. <laughs> when I saw yeah. that, I'm like, whoa, it's like very cheesecake. <laughs> oh, that is, uh, yeah, that is, uh, <laughs> that is definitely crap. a pinup of Black Canary. That looks like Michael Bear's art. It's not, but it looks like it. It is uh, beautifully drawn, <laughs> and it definitely makes you go, Oh yeah, that's why we all fell in love with her. That's that's why we all had crushes on her in the eighties. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's pretty pretty well drawn. <laughs> yeah, I had never seen her drawn in any kind of like super sexy way like that before in any comic. I was just like, holy crap, look at this! And it says, uh, it's Mike Hernandez is the guy's name, and I think Terry Austin inked it. Yes, he did. Yeah, mm -hmm. <laughs> it is definitely look of the the all the pinups are great. Mm -hmm. That that one is a pinup in a very specific way, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah, you're not kidding. <laughs> yeah, that's more of a like, you know, local garage mechanics pinup. But it's great. It's well drawn. The Sandman one is brilliant looking. And then, you know, anytime Joe Kubert draws Golden Age heroes, it's it's a treat. Yeah, for sure. And I think there's a second one in uh, in this last issue, too. And this is the one I think is a Howard Bender uh, uh, and it's a reproduction of the original All Star number five cover. It says, and uh, it's pretty neat. It's a, you know got the uh, specter there zapping some guy. It looks like he's choking the man, <laughs> asphyxiating <laughs> him. And Green Lantern there, he's got a you know like a lock around some guy with uh, two beams coming out of his ring, and the other one has a uh, boxing glove and punching the guy. And then we have the Flash uh, zipping around, making a whirlwind to whip some other guy off his feet, another hoodlum. This is the thing I love about the JSA. I love about the All-Star Squadron. Even as a kid, I loved this, is the range of powers. That basically you get Tarantula, who's just a guy with a grappling hook gun. And mm -hmm. you get the Spectre, who is the most powerful character in the DC Universe. <laughs> and they're on the same team together, just punching guys in the face. Like, it's it's the beauty of this book is that, you know, you have this range of heroes and all of them are trying to do good. You know, so you, have, you have a guy with a whip and you have a guy with a magic thunderbolt. I mean, it's just, it's such a cool mix and it makes the book so fun. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And I did too forget uh, to talk about the cover here for 43 as well. This is another go on Battle for the Stars on it, it mm -hmm. says. And then... Uh, you know, it shows a tarantula and firebrand fighting over the gravity rod. Um, and it kind of makes it sound like they're, you know, 
trying to kill each other, but <laughs> they don't really well. go that far in the <laughs> issue. <laughs> they, they have a, you know, he kind of falls off there inadvertently, but it's a pretty good cover too. I love how it has Starman in the background there, the blue again. Oh, I love that's like my favorite part of this cover. The rest of it's good too, but that is hands down my favorite part of this cover. Yeah, mine too. Mine too. And, it, and it's reminiscent of this, the breakdown he's going to have in this issue, which is really great. And, and that's another cool element. And to kind of presage, you know, preface what's to come in the in the next arc that you'll cover with the brilliant Martin Gray. Um, it is he's not the only one who's going to have a moment of doubt. There's a another core member of this team who's going to have a real, you know, mm-hmm. moment of questioning her her role and her heroism. And that's the other thing I really love about this book is, of course, during a time of war a level of intensity like this. And these are all super young heroes. Ted Knight's only been Starman less than a year. And yeah. you have to kind of remind yourself of that. So that's, you know, some of these people have only been heroes for a month, you know, in, in Amazing Man's case, a couple of weeks, you know? And so mm-hmm. it really, you have to remind yourself, these are these are early days and they're facing their greatest challenge. Yep. Yeah, that they really are. This is a, again, with if not for Crisis, probably this this book, who knows what it, uh, heights it could have reached that's, didn't have any monkey wrench thrown into it, but it's still on a pretty good roll here. And I did want to mention too, <laughs> I was reading this and I thought, what did he just say? So <laughs> when on page 14 of issue 43, when uh, Daka and his uh, minions have Liberty Bell, he has Liberty Bell and he throws her to the ground and he says, once the gravity rod is in our hands, all Yankees will join you, Firebrand, in groveling before the might of Nippon. And I'm oh, like, he does uh, call her Firebrand. Yeah, like that, dude. <laughs> That's Liberty Bell, dude. <laughs> I totally missed that. That's really funny. He totally calls her Firebrand. Mm-hmm. But I'm thinking, you know, again, it was, you know, a different scripter. So, you know, obviously somebody that hadn't been on the book could make, it's a lot easier for them to make a mistake. Like Roy would not have written that. So, no. you know, it's kind of a, it's like, okay, I can, I can make a pass for that since it was a, a fill-in scripter. But yeah, that was funny. All of a sudden, I'm like, wait a minute, did he just call her Firebrand? <laughs> or if, if you want to know prize it, you know, Daka is a, a <laughs> villain and he just thinks all women are, you know, he has no respect for women and he's calling her. So, you know, he's just calling her by any name. So, you know, it could, you could, we could no prize it and make it him, him see even more villainous because now he's also a misogynist. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. And then, my gosh, earlier, like or when he has her, and the other team members come to do the switch. He likes he, a couple of times. Doesn't he slap her? Yeah. And hit, and hit her. It's like, wow. You know, it's like, and then she, what does she say to him? Like, I owe you a couple, I think. Yeah. Okay, Daka. But remember, I owe you a couple because she's just like, I'm not going to forget this, buddy. And I'm like, ooh, good for her. I hope she yeah. runs into him again. She's tough. I love her. She's, I mean, she's my favorite character in this book. I love Liberty Bell. Yeah, she's awesome. Um, and like you said, looking forward to uh, some down the road uh, issues with her and uh, some of her uh, really good stuff from Roy about, you know, what's going to happen with her basically. So, all right. Well, any final thoughts here uh, on this one, uh, Sean, this story? No, just a super fun arc that, you know, for me, the arc itself is already enjoyable. It's a good story. It's a good focus on Starman. I like the Japanese villains, uh, Tsunami, understanding that she's going to come back in a heroic role. But I, you know, the thing I love most about this arc is the legacy elements of it, that it's going to get picked up on in Young All-Stars. It's going to get picked up on Starman. Some of it's going to get picked up in JSA. So it's just really cool that, you know, this, this little Bronze Age title, you know, that was just chugging along on the, on the way to crisis, planted some seeds that would be picked up on later. 
Yeah, that's great. I love to see that. I mean, uh, hey, look at it from the other side of the street. There's all these Bronze Age stories that at the time were just like, yeah, that was a good story. And now they're making billions of dollars in, in movies. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. No kidding, right? <laughs> so mining, mining the past is a good thing. So, yeah, I definitely have to get uh, cracking here. I'll have to check out that uh, Young All-Stars. And then, boy, the more, you know, you talk about it and uh, like guys like Paul Hicks, too. It's like, oh, man, I might have to get that star man sooner than later because it's just everybody says it's so good. Yeah, I've never heard a disparaging word about it. It is it is a brilliant series. Yeah, I think even uh, on Fire and Water, they were going over that one, aren't they? Uh, Chris and yeah. Sonny Franklin, I think. Yeah, yeah, they are. They have like I, I don't know if it's called Starman Chronicles, but it's they. Yeah, they they're covering that book, too. Yeah, I'll have to listen into what they have to say about it, too. I'm sure they love it, too, or else they wouldn't be talking about it. So. <laughs> You'll have to get cracking there. I got some more homework to do. So, yay, I already have enough homework to do. I feel like I'm going back to school here, Sean. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it's fun. It's all fun subjects. <laughs> yes. Yes. This is homework I actually look forward to, unlike when I was in school. And I was like, oh, God, no. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right. So, hey, so if anybody wants to uh, find you out there, where can they uh, look for you? Yeah, so uh, I am on Twitter at Sean42AZ. Uh, I am so thrilled to be joining you on this show and, and uh, alternating with Mart, who's awesome. I also am co-host of The Bat Pod with Bill Beer. And then on the Pulp to Pixel Podcast Network, I co-host the Never Ending Reading Pile with Greg Arujo. And we cover just short arcs or issues from series and we use them as a jumping off point to talk about the series or the characters at large and and that's a fun show we've we've actually delved into all-star squadron at one point uh we've delved into starman you know we jla jsa we definitely have a soft spot for dc legacy so uh that's a fun series for nostalgia as well but but man thanks for having me again i love this book and you know the the only thing that makes collecting comics more fun is getting to talk about it with your friends so this is awesome Yep, absolutely. And yeah, I did just share recently on Twitter as well that uh, um, with you and Mart, you know, coming in here to help pinch hit with me has been great. And the show went over, you know, a, a benchmark for downloads. And I was like, wow. And I wouldn't her when I first started the show. I thought, yeah, this is going to be fun. This is going to be great. But never did I think it was going to be listened to that many times by that many people. So that was really, really fun. I really enjoyed that. Yeah, it's a great show, man. You and Herman, the show was brilliant. You guys are, are awesome. You're both great dudes. And and then, you know, anything that Martin's on is going to be amazing. I mean, not only is he kind and funny and delightful, but you can't beat the accent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's the best. I'm looking forward to uh, when uh, either he'll travel over to here or I'll travel over to uh, there, you know, once, uh, you know, restrictions and things like that calm down a bit and, mm -hmm. you know, hopefully things get under control and uh, hopefully he and I can meet up. We're already because I think he'll probably make it over here because he does a lot of traveling. So, oh, he'll yeah, probably make it over to the States before I make it over to uh, the UK. But, yeah, we're already plotting on uh, meeting up uh, if he comes over here anytime soon. Looking forward to that because, like you said, great guy. He's uh, got a great sense of humor, you know, very caring, very nice guy. So I love having and both of you guys on here. You guys are just a, a joy to have on. Oh, that's great, man. This is this is a lot of fun. Yeah. And and he used to work in the comic book industry. So, you know, he knows. His yeah. Stuff. Yep. Yeah. That's that's one thing, too. It's, he's one of those guys that just I marvel at because uh, I can't remember stuff I did last week. And he's like, oh, yeah, when I read this comic in 1985, I'm like, what? <laughs> how in the world do you remember that? You know, it's like blows me away. <laughs> yeah, he's pretty amazing. I, I think I think I want to be him when I grow up. He's just living his best life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. Especially the traveling part. Oh, oh yeah, that's the best. Oh, that is the best. That's 
that's you know like you said when i grow up that's what i want to do for a living (laughs) (laughs) so all right sean well thanks for being on again and uh looking forward to talking to you again in the future and then uh, just to you know let the cat out of the bag here hopefully in the very near future you know maybe you uh myself and martin can get on an episode together and talk about some issues which would be really a lot of fun too so that's uh hopefully we can make that make that happen so sooner than later that would be great hey issue 50 coming down the pike Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah, it's only a couple episodes away because we just finished up to 43. So look out. Maybe we'll have to do an anniversary there. Mm-hmm. So, all right. Well, again, thanks for uh, joining me, Sean, and everybody. Uh, hopefully we'll get another episode out in two weeks' time. So we'll see you later. <laughs>